Hello, I'm Kim Katola, host of Cradle My Heart Radio. Our mission is preventing abortion and helping those it hurts. And our vision is to bring abortion recovery to the church, reaching out to equip and encourage pastors, elders, ministry leaders, and others so they can minister God's love to the millions of Christians personally impacted by this moral crisis of our time. Saving lives and healing hearts, this is Cradle My Heart Radio. Find us online at cradlemyheart.org. Where can you find God's voice in the noise on reproductive choice? For over a million women and men each year, the question goes beyond politics to become much more pressing and personal, both before and after the choice. And we are called to love the little children just as God does. Listen to Cradle My Heart Radio with your host, Kim Katola, speaker, writer, and broadcaster, sharing God's truth to prevent abortion and help those it hurts. Learn more at cradlemyheart.org. Thank you so much for being here today and for turning your mind to the idea of what it means to be repenting and preventing abortion in the church. This episode is going to focus on the repenting piece, and I've chosen to do that for a couple of reasons. One, because recent conversations with people who are very savvy about the need for restoration after abortion of Christians and people in the church uh, has said that uh, preaching repentance to these people is inappropriate, that they need to hear about God's love, that if you're broken by abortion, you do not need to hear about repentance. I think that's a pretty common mindset that I've encountered in the church. And so I I want to tackle that head on. But I also want to talk about the value of repentance in terms of living a healthy life, both spiritually and mentally. That repentance is, in my mind, a golden key that every Christian needs to have at our disposal to open the door to peace with ourselves, with others, with God. And so repentance is what we're talking about today. And our key verse is found in 2 Corinthians uh, in chapter 7. And I'll read it to you for, uh, for you as we begin. At, at verse 10, 2 Corinthians 7.10, we read, Godly sorrow brings repentance and leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. And so the context for this is Paul talking about uh, church discipline and talking about uh, being yoked with unbelievers is the section that immediately precedes his Uh, writing about worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. But it's a concept that I think applies across across different contexts in our lives as Christians, especially the wisdom that Paul deploys when he says, worldly sorrow leads to death, godly sorrow leads to repentance. And what that tells me is that this godly sorrow that leads to repentance— is a changed heart and a changed mind. How often did our Lord say to us, you need to change your heart. It's your heart that's the problem, right? Uh, But worldly sorrow leading to death 
to me, that means if you're stuck in worldly sorrow, you are going to have poor mental health outcomes because it may even... It's a dead-end thinking, first of all, as a way to put it, but it also may even lead to suicide. It may lead to the death of dreams, the death of the things that are most important to you, the death of relationships. And so worldly sorrow is the opposite of godly sorrow, and godly sorrow is what produces repentance in us. And I think that we see in our own lives and... We see in our own lives and in the and in the scriptures how often the message to repent is given to us. And yet I think there still remains a lot of confusion in our minds as to what it is, how do we do it, why should we do it? Um if you if we if we were to do a word study on repent and look for instances where this word is used, we see first of all that it's really the first words of Jesus in the Gospels. In Matthew 4:17, his first sermon, repent. Okay, that was his first sermon. We see this reiterated in Mark 1:15. Uh in Luke 5:32, Jesus said, repent. In Luke 13, Jesus told people who were you know, they were asking him about a natural disaster when a tower had fallen and and people died. And he said, you know what? Did God do this? Was it a natural disaster? What does it mean? Unless you repent, something bad is waiting you for awaiting you as well. He didn't really answer their question. What he said was every single person, whether you die from natural causes, from an accident, from whatever befalls you, we all need to repent. And if we don't, something worse than whatever disaster is at hand is awaiting us. This is in Luke thirteen three when when Jesus was talking about this. We see in the scriptures throughout the New Testament certainly that repentance is regarded as a gift. It says so in Acts eleven eighteen and again in Acts seventeen thirty, in Second Timothy two twenty five. Uh, Romans 2, verse 4 says it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. Um, and uh, in Second Peter 3, 9, it says, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So it's a gift. God gives it. God desires us for, every, for us. It desires it for us and for everyone. But we also see in Revelations 3, 19 that we are to seek it. So... If you're zealous for God, you should be seeking the repentance, which brings about a changed heart internally, which then leads to a changed life externally. You start making different choices. You start treating people differently. You begin to view yourself with the humility of having learned in your repentance that, wow, I'm really capable of anything apart from God. I am not a good person, as our pride tempts us to believe right? Everyone thinks that they're a good person. And when we measure ourselves by God's standard, we see that we are all, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? And so I think that repentance, as I said, is a key. It's a key to our new life in Christ. It's a key to finding peace of mind. And all of these things that are described in Second Corinthians uh, 7, verse 10, that that repentance produces. I don't know why anyone would want to steer people away from it, right? Because what happens after we repent 
is we become very earnest in our faith. We start to take it really seriously. You know, and if you've ever felt, um, let's say, embarrassed because you've never evangelized and shared the gospel with anybody, you know, and you know you're falling short in that, well, have you repented so that your earnestness about the seriousness of the good news and how everyone needs it, you know, maybe it's a repentance issue if you are not really, really earnest in your faith. It says in Second Corinthians that godly sorrow and repentance brings about eagerness to clear yourself. What does this mean? This means um, in recovery circles, it means making amends. It means going to the people that you've harmed, going to the people that you have sinned against, going to the people where you have fallen short and saying, you know, what can I do to make this right? (laughs) I'm a grandma now and my kids love Daniel Tiger. And he has a big feelings um, playlist about how to handle emotions. I guess that's Daniel Tiger's mission in life is to help kids handle their emotions. But um, there's a song that the lyric says, saying I'm sorry is the first step, then how can I help? Right? And so this is what the earnestness to clear yourself, what eagerness to clear yourself looks like. You go to a person and you say, that was so wrong of me. How can I make this right? I want to clear myself. I want you to trust me again. I want to restore what we had before. And so this eagerness to clear yourselves is also the fruit of repentance. Uh, What indignation, right? Like the people who led you into that mindset, those who lied to you. And when we're talking about abortion, I mean, the indignation, when people start to understand the truth, that they were not given informed consent, that they were outright deceived, that they were lied to, that the deception is ongoing, even in the face of, you know, 4D ultrasound that proves the complete humanity of a child in the womb, they're still lying and saying not a person, not a blob of tissue or whatever their lies are. This creates such indignation in people who have repented from abortion because, you know, there were deadly consequences of having listened to those lies. And so that's just one example of how repentance can lead to complete indignation over sin. And it's a good thing because then it causes you to want to prevent others falling into that trap that has swallowed you. Uh, What alarm? Once you've repented, you become alarmed about, you know, how widespread sin is and how complacent you may have been with it personally. We, my husband Bruce and I, have done prison ministry. And in the past, we served with Pastor Raphael. And maybe I've quoted him to you before, but he he used to always say, you know, if the devil never comes against you, it might be because you're moving in his same direction, right? I mean, if if you're not fully repented of the sin in your own life, you're not alarmed about the worldliness of the world the sinfulness of sin. You're just not alarmed about it. You're just rocking along to the world's rhythms. But when you become enlightened to it, when you become made completely aware of how sin victimizes and damages and destroys, it becomes very alarming to the point that where you you, you are driven to action, right? Uh, Longing, Second Corinthians tells us repentance and godly sorrow leads to longing. We want all of our loved ones to know the truth. We want everyone to know the truth. We have 
a love for strangers we never had before so that we care about their eternal destiny. We long for God to come and return. We long for his presence in our lives. And if you're feeling dry spiritually, if you're feeling like your faith isn't producing any fruit and it's you're going through the motions or maybe you've even, you know, stopped some of your spiritual practices that you've done in the past, you're not going to church, you're not reading your Bible, um, you don't have this sense of longing, I would pray and ask God to show you maybe what it is that you need to repent. Uh, Godly sorrow and repentance leads to concern. This is how we begin to love our neighbors as ourselves, because we care. You know, if you don't, if, if you have sin that you have not repented and you're living with it, and you're letting it dominate your mind by men- by making mental accommodation for it. I think that's what the the worldly sorrow is. You're making a mental accommodation through justification, through denial, through uh, addictions. There's infinite numbers of ways to defend yourself against the truth of what sin is and what it does. There are infinite numbers of ways of becoming apathetic and becoming uh, hardened and dead to sin, right? Dead, godly, or that worldly sorrow leads to death. You just don't care. You don't care about yourself. You don't care about other people. You don't, you know, you don't care about really um, things that the average unbeliever would care about, right? Just to be a good Samaritan, just to be... um, you know, a decent human being. But this worldly sorrow and repentance gives us the concern that allows us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then finally, what readiness to see justice done. You know, I think that in my deepest moments of receiving the gift of repentance from God, and I'm very moved thinking about that and what those moments have been like, um, I... I have said, oh, Lord, I don't want anyone to be punished. I want your mercy for everyone. And yet I know that, right, because, I mean, if I escaped God's justice and received his mercy instead, and I know the sinfulness of my own sin, then yes, I definitely don't want anyone punished. I want all of us to receive mercy. I want mercy for myself, not justice, right? But I think what the what the verse is talking about here is when we're ready to see justice done, it means that we are we're all we've picked a different side, if you will. We we have said, you know, that isn't right. And again, when it comes to abortion, we start thinking about who are, for example, the practitioners who are performing late-term abortions. If you're a listener of this program, maybe you know this, but maybe you haven't yet heard that there are seven states in the United States where abortion is allowed through all nine months of pregnancy. And those practitioners are, you know, it's are wreaking injustice. How can I say it, right? They're, what they are doing is the epitome of injustice, taking, you know, power over weak, unborn children because their parents have asked them to, and the parents themselves asking those practitioners to do that. 
is in, it's an injustice that is so glaring. Every abortion is an injustice against an innocent human being. And therefore, that's why it's morally wrong. You know, it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, and abortion is the intentional killing of innocent human beings. Therefore, abortion is morally wrong. So it's anything that is morally wrong is an injustice to the person that's being transgressed in every case. But when we think about, again, you know, the most, the more egregious um, aspects of the injustice, when we have this worldly sorrow and repentance about abortion, we are so eager for justice to be done for every child who should have a basic right to life a basic right to be born. And so I think that, um, again, I will, I will just encourage you that if you have repented, my guess is, my sense is that you probably know the beauty of it and the value of it. You may be able to point to when you knew you'd had a change of heart, when you realized, oh, I don't think about this the way that I used to. And maybe not, you know, because persuasion can happen, usually happens, over a long period of time. Uh, And often after a prolonged campaign of being exposed to truth and to, you know, I mean, you can be persuaded of something that's not true, but being, being exposed to the information that becomes persuasive and, um, you know, the people who study this have found that most people, when you're given new information, most of us don't say, well, thank you for that. I've been wrong about this my entire life. You know, usually, if you begin to understand immediately, oh, I see, that's probably true. Uh, the initial reaction is more likely to be anger. You're angry at the person who's exposed, you know, the, the, the flaw in your thinking. But what happens is, you know, even even if that occurs, it becomes like, um, as one author put it, and forgive me, I'll try to put it in the, I'll look it up so I can put it in the, the show notes. I can't remember the author's name right now. But he says, you know, when, you're, when your heart is changed, when your mind is changed, initially, you don't necessarily throw the old idea out, but you look at it as a broken chair that you just don't sit on as often. <laughs> you just don't bring that into play uh, as often as you do the furniture that you know is sound. And then one day you may wake up and you may say, you know, that chair is broken. I need to just throw it out. I don't, I don't need to keep this in my thinking any longer because that's not, it's not truth. It's not a useful idea to me any longer. I, I was wrong about that. And I'm persuaded now of some new idea. And I think that this is very much how repentance may work in some, that you receive the gift of, you know, realizing that I need to confess, whether it's a sinful lifestyle or a particular sin, you know, the Holy Spirit convicts, and then you understand, all right, I do need to get right with God about this, however, you know, whether confession or however you um, think of that in your mind. And then... After you do such, maybe there's an immediate peace that floods you. I mean, I've had that experience. Like, oh, goodness, I've carried this and I don't need to any longer. I've given it to the Lord. 
and I can trust him to bring something good out of it. I can trust him to um, teach me what I need to know now. I can entrust this sin or this damaging action, whatever it is, I can entrust it to God. I don't need to carry it any longer. And, you know, when you when you get to that point, I think usually, I mean, most people would feel a great deal of peace about that. You know, then you may need to do more work. You may need to, as I said, go and repair relationships with people. You may need to make that admission to other people. You may need to make atonement or reparations. I think that, you know, this idea about atoning for our sin and making reparations after sin is really not in favor in the Reformed Church and in evangelical circles, you know, because now are you saying that whatever your action is is going to be above the forgiveness of God in Christ, which is all sufficient for us? And, of course, I would never speak against that idea because that is true. Uh, What Christ has done for us on the cross is finished. And no act of anyone could ever surpass what he accomplished for us in that. And yet we do see Jesus, for example, with Zacchaeus. And when he goes to Zacchaeus' house, Zacchaeus responds to Jesus being there by doing the atoning acts that are required when you have extorted holy things uh, in Leviticus. Right. And so he's like, I'm going to give half my fortune away and I'm going to, you know, and he starts talking about the reparations he's going to make. And Jesus doesn't say, well, you've met me. That's not necessary. No, he understands that reparations are a way of bringing us out of the shame that kept us isolated from people and restoring us to community by being an outward action that displays the truth and the thoroughness of the repentance that has actually happened in our hearts. And so I think that, you know, this is why in my book, Cradle My Heart, Finding God's Love After Abortion, there's a chapter about reparations and about restitution, because it makes such a difference in the life of the believer who can demonstrate, again, this changed heart. So for in the case of, uh, of abortion, you know, there can be very simple things that you can do today that can demonstrate I see and know the value of bodily human life. I'm going to, for example, donate blood. Maybe that's not appropriate for you medically or physically, but you understand where I'm going. I'm going to donate my hair to locks of love. Something that is a gift from God in my bodily person that I can share with others to help people see how very much I value this gift from God. And I think that um, it has nothing to do with gaining your forgiveness for that sin, but it has everything to do with honoring the Lord who made you and honoring other people in ways that your former mindset, your former behavior, your sin, you know, betrayed the valuing of that gift from God. And it may not even be anything that's bodily. That's not necessarily the point. It may be, um, okay, now you become a volunteer at the church nursery. You help children in some way. Or it doesn't, maybe, maybe the sorrow over abortion is so deep that it's very painful for you to help small children and to be near small children as a reminder of what you have lost. 
that's okay. You can probably overcome that with some work on reproductive loss, trauma, and healing, Bible study groups at pregnancy resource centers and elsewhere. But if children is not the answer for you, you can serve in the soup kitchen. You can serve in a prison. You can serve at a homeless shelter. There are people everywhere who need your hands, your heart, your time, your faith, your energy, and your love. And the minute that you give of yourself with no expectation of anything in return, you have now repudiated the selfishness that's at the heart of every choice for abortion. And when I say selfishness, um, I, I don't know what the personal circumstances of you may have been if you had an abortion. Uh, I'm certainly not talking about someone who was coerced and abandoned to abortion. I'm talking about the selfishness of those who choose it to cover up a problem pregnancy or, you know, for a reason other than uh, that someone else has made this decision for them. So as you think about repentance, I pray that you would earnestly seek that gift from God, as it says in Revelations 3.19, that you would earnestly seek the repentance that leads to a completely new mindset, a completely new heart, and a completely new approach to the life that God has given you. Repentance is truly a gift, and I pray that it is evident in abundance in your life and mine. Thanks for listening. You can learn more at our website at cradlemyheart.org. This is Cradle My Heart Radio with Kim Katola, preventing abortion and helping those it hurts. Please get in touch with Kim. Find out more at cradlemyheart.org. You can listen to the podcast on all platforms.